Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we come to praise the Lord, we remember our uh, fallenness and our impure condition before a holy God. And so we turn to His Word and have Him call us to confess our sins. This, this week we're looking at the fourth commandment in our catechism, so we'll do the same for our call to confession as well. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Thus far, the reading of God's word. So God made the world in six days, and he rested the seventh. So we have the same weekly pattern of working and resting. God means it as a day of worship and rest. And Hebrews 4 calls us to enter God's rest. And when Christ came, he called us himself, as we heard in the the call to worship. He says he will give us rest. And this is the big picture of the fourth commandment. Find your rest in Christ. Uh, All kinds of things give us comfort in life. Uh, The presence of a friend, uh, from that to a cup of coffee, to getting home after being away. Uh, But our ultimate rest needs to be found in the Lord. Uh, One of our founding sins in the garden was wanting to be independent of God. uh, Refusing uh, what God gives us. Uh, And when we refuse his rest, we are doing that. We keep time that he gave us for ourselves. Uh, We tell ourselves we don't need rest. All kinds of ways we can uh, go wrong in this commandment. So let us confess our sins before Almighty God. Please kneel if you're able. We will pray. prayer of illumination, asking that you would uh, bring to light this text for us in our minds, in our hearts, that you would do this by your Holy Spirit's work. We know, Lord, that uh, an an automatic uh, reading of your word is not automatic illumination, but that your Spirit's work is required. And so we ask that you would be present with us to bless us as we seek to attend to this word now. Thank you for uh, the life-giving nature of this word. And and may you work your life in us as we consider this word now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John 7, verse 14, we begin reading the middle of this chapter today, going through verse 36. Hear God's inerrant word. 
Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers indeed know that this is truly the Christ? However, we know that where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Thus far the reading of God's word this morning. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it together. Well, we have Jesus here continuing in his teaching ministry as prophet. We often think of him as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, but in reality, we, ought, we usually think of Jesus, I'm kind of a numbers guy, uh, we, we think of Jesus 80% of the time as our priest, the one who died on the cross to take our sins away. And maybe 10% of the time we think of him as our king and maybe another 3% as prophet. Uh, it's, we need to spend a bit more time in Jesus' teachings and see where he corrects our understandings, because that's the main thing that he does today in this text. The, the Jews are misunderstanding Jesus left and right, all over the place. And Jesus corrects and uh, teaches more patiently. So that's really the theme today. He's convicting the Jews, he's convincing them of the truth. And uh, three basic points uh, there. He's from God, he's righteous, and he's going to God. Those are the three main things that he says. So let's look at that verse by verse a moment. First of all, the Jews are amazed at his teaching. Verse 15, how does he know letters? 
which is kind of a fancy way of saying, how does he speak so well? How does he know exactly what to say? He knows the law in and out. But he's never studied, which, again, is also an idiom. It's not like Jesus literally never studied. It means he didn't go to Jerusalem for, and study at the feet of the rabbis, mainly. Uh, he didn't go to the, the institutional schools of learning, the mainstream academia of the day. And they're amazed. Uh, they're looking at Jesus as any other teacher. They're misjudging him in that way. And so Jesus sets himself apart from the usual evaluating that we do of teachers and speakers. Uh, you know, that's what they're doing. They're judging him. As, you know, you go to a conference and, oh, that was a good speaker. I liked him. Uh, not so much of that guy. I don't know. And so we kind of judge speakers that way. And Jesus is uh, getting out from under that kind of uh, judgment mentality. He sets them straight right away. My teaching is from God. Verse uh, 18, 16, sorry. Uh, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. It, so Jesus is saying, making large claims again right away. Verse 18 as well. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. I, I'm not seeking, speaking from myself. I'm seeking the glory of the one who sent me. Uh, I am true. And then the clincher at the end of verse 18. No unrighteousness is in him. And the grammar is a little tricky there. It, it may look to you at first like Jesus is saying, talking about God there. That no unrighteousness is in God. But actually, he's saying no unrighteousness is in the one that God sent. In other words, me. No, no unrighteousness is in me. So put yourself in that conference kind of mentality, right? You've got a, a conference lineup, and there's four speakers over a weekend. And, and uh, you know, it's, let's say it's Ligonier Conference, right? I, I'm familiar with Ligonier fairly well. Say Sinclair Ferguson stands up at the Ligonier Conference, and he says, none of you keeps the law. We're all good with that so far. We know that. But then he goes on to say, and there is no unrighteousness in the one speaking to you. What? Sinclair Ferguson says, go ahead and look. You won't find anything wrong in my life. It boggles the mind. We know we're not supposed to say such things. We know this is not true. But of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this is perfectly true. No unrighteousness in me. So that's one of the, the, uh, the, the big uh, corrections that Jesus brings here. You all, verse 19, he says, on the other hand, you have broken the law. So, uh, again, we're not called to, to judge Jesus trying to find a chink in his armor as he's speaking. Instead, we better look to ourselves. Uh, and he speaks of the law in verse 19. The law condemns. And uh, we read this in Romans 3. Right? The law stops our mouths. That's why we read from Romans 3 this morning. That we, we see, when we read the law, that, that we have uh, no leg to stand on. Uh, I like to think of the law as uh, lines on the road. We're doing some driver's training with kids these days. So the, the law is like the lights, traffic lights, and the lines on the road, right? It shows us the way to drive rightly. And when we drive badly, the red light makes it clear, right? Or the yellow line that we're crossing. That, that, then we know uh, we're going against the traffic regulation. The, the law does those things. The law has no power to move you to drive well and, clear, and carefully. But when the Spirit works in you to be godly, then he shows you the lines and you'll look for them and you follow the law. It's an apt illustration, I think, of what the law is. So uh, Jesus isn't just teaching here. He's convicting them of sin as well, saying none of you keeps the law. 
and, I, and there's no unrighteousness in me. It couldn't be a more extreme statement, and it's perfectly true. So Jesus says, also in verse 17, uh, he says, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God. Uh, two things about this. One is it points us back to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. This is the hint. There's a, there's a hint here where Jesus says, If anyone wills to do his will. Right? Moses had said, I don't do any of this of my own will. Right? I'm, I'm just doing what God sent me to do. That's what Moses says to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Jesus is saying the same kind of thing here. When they oppose Jesus, he has the same response. God sent me. This teaching is from God. So, so why oppose me then? So he's bringing to mind, I think, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in that episode. And, and you guys, you Jews, rulers who are opposing me, you're in the place of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Better figure that out and, and fix that quickly. So that's the first thing in verse 17. And also, it really brings to mind the ethical nature of teaching and of doctrine, right? This isn't just a matter of learning things and getting mentally straight what Jesus is saying. Jesus points to, the, to our corrupt nature, right? They, the theologians call it the noetic effects of the fall, which is just a Greek word for mental, right? There's, there are mental effects of the fall. Because we're sinful by nature now, but we don't want to and we can't mentally understand the, tr- the truth. Uh, and so Jesus says that in verse 19. If you really want to do God's will, th- then you'll know. You'll get it. Uh, the Puritans like to say that obedience is the great opener of eyes. That's another good way to put it. If you're, if you're seeking God's will and obeying him and striving to obey him, then you're going to understand more and more as things go along. And you won't be confused by what Jesus is saying. You'll get it because, because you want to be following God. And Jesus here is, by converse, Jesus is saying to these Jews who are opposing him, you're not really wanting to follow God. You're just wanting to stay in control, uh, to stay in power, to keep me out. That, that's your main thing. If, if, it, if you can make it look like you're following God as you do that, fine. But you're not really trying to follow God. You're just in this for yourselves. And therefore, you oppose me. So you seek to kill me. It's kind of a, a, a sudden turn. And you have to remember the setting here, the verse, end of verse 19. You're, you're in the, the feast in Jerusalem, right? So you've got at least two kinds of people that Jesus is talking to. You've got rulers that are literally trying to kill Jesus. They're out to arrest him and put him to death. And then you've got a lot of other people, uh, verse 25 is an example, who are talking about him, saying, could this be the Messiah? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe. He says a lot of good things. He's done a lot of healing. So you've got people that have that kind of posture towards Jesus. So when Jesus makes this kind of statement in verse 19, he's talking to two different groups of people, and that's why it seems so like such a sudden left turn, right? Didn't Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So some, are, some in the crowd are seeking to kill him, and he begins talking to them. And he's talking, of course, about the controversial healing on the Sabbath back in chapter 5. Right? That's what got them first started opposing Jesus. And the people are confused because the leaders appear, apparently the leaders are hiding their hostility to Jesus. And I think that's, that's accurate. We, they're, they're not coming right out and, and saying, okay, everybody, go get them. Right? They're, they're already trying to arrest Jesus rather covertly so that they aren't blamed for taking down a fairly popular teacher. 
so they're in that kind of mindset. The people don't realize nobody's trying to kill you. The, the people say something like that, while the Jews actually, the rulers actually are. Uh, so uh, notice he's talking to the leaders about their hostility when many of the people don't share it. That's, that's a fascinating situation. I, this may be a bit of a stretch, but I think there's a, an application here. Uh, in our culture wars today, we have uh, what Doug Wilson likes to call apostles and refugees. Right? There, there are some apostles of the culture of death, those who are just really wicked people who are consciously trying to destroy the family, trying to destroy godly institutions and living. Uh, those kinds of people are out there. But then there are also refugees, uh, people who are believing those lies, kind of confused. Uh, uh, take the example of abortion for, for an example. We, we speak in one way to the apostles of the culture of death. We speak in another uh, to a woman who's believed the lie that she has to have an abortion and has had one and now feels very guilty about it. And so Jesus here has that same kind of two different kind of people in the crowd. He's got people who are confused about him and people who are actively seeking to kill him. And so he's speaking in two ways. But, and notice he doesn't back down and he just says, you're seeking to kill me. So he's willing to uh, give the hard words in that kind of mixed crowd. Well, uh, the, the Jews respond in verse 20 and say, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. I think this is just an idiom when they say you have a demon. Uh, maybe not. It, it, you can take this two ways. It, it, it's just kind of rash speech on their part saying, you're talking crazy. That, that would be one way to take this. Uh, but even if it is kind of rash in that way, it's quite blasphemous. Think of that, saying to Jesus, you have a demon. That's, that's the height of blasphemy right there. So it's, it's rash speech, if nothing else. Uh, but they're, but they're uh, putting it back on him that it's, that it's his fault, that it's his problem. Who's seeking to kill you? You're, you're, you're paranoid. Uh, but no, he, he is not. And we, we do this uh, all, all the time ourselves. When somebody points out a flaw in our life, as Jesus is doing with the Jews, how often do you say back to the person, not exactly these words maybe, but something like, you have a demon. <laughs> No, you're the one who's wrong, not me, right? Mom says to teenage son, please be more kind to your sister. And he fires back, why are you always getting on me? Right? We, it, we often attack the one who's trying to help us obey God better. It's, it's often how it works. Uh, and uh, Jesus here uh, bears the brunt of that uh, by with the people saying, you have a demon. I mean, it, it, Every time the Jews speak here, I just kind of shake my head and wonder that Jesus didn't just stalk off and say, literally, I don't mean this in a vulgar way. I mean, Jesus could literally say, to hell with you. you know, shake your head and I'm done. But Jesus continues to speak. You're going to say, I have a demon? I'm the one who cast out the demons. And Jesus is such a patient condescending teacher comes down to our level and he continues to speak give us another chance another chance that's what he's doing so what is their beef with Jesus again it goes back to John 5 verse 16 if you circumcise on the Sabbath Jesus says going on now into verses 22 to 24 if you circumcise on the Sabbath uh, to keep the law why not heal on the Sabbath that's Jesus basic question healing is an even greater work uh, healing the whole body, uh, 
Why not do that? This takes us into the whole Sabbath discussion a bit, right? The Westminster folks like to say that on the Sabbath it's appropriate to do works of mercy. That's what they called them, and Jesus here has done one. The Sabbath is not mainly about inactivity, right? It's about setting the day apart to God, giving rest to others. That's what Jesus has just done. So don't worry about how it looks. Verse 24, he says, don't judge according to appearance. You know, watch out for that, those kind of surface judgments. Uh, you know, it, it looks like I'm working as I heal this man and tell him to pick up his mat and walk. It looks, okay, am I telling him to work, quote unquote? I suppose you could see it that way, but that's kind of a, a, a judgment of, according to appearance. Judge with righteous judgment. What, what, what did I actually do to him on the Sabbath? I gave him life. I gave him rest. It made him whole. And that's what the whole Sabbath is all about. Uh, so uh, be careful not judging uh, according to surface judgments. Uh, a couple examples on this. Uh, uh, one, uh, both kind of humorous, I suppose. But one, I thought of those petitions back there on the table. And it, it, it can be easy to scan through the, the list of names and say, whoa, wait a minute. Mrs. Schwartz isn't on the list. Mrs. Schwartz must not want to sign this petition. But it turns out she actually signed another petition two weeks ago already, and you can only sign once, right? So we can make a, a surface judgment like that, that that's negative of someone else, but we don't have all the facts. And then we're, we're judging someone unfairly. Uh, another humorous one, we were driving to uh, church just today, and all these old cars were going by on the highway, going the other way. And I, kids are asking, what, why does everybody drive their old cars on Sundays? So I talk a little bit about that. It's a day of rest culturally. That, you know, people enjoy things like this. It's, and they say, is that okay? I said, well, it's fine as long as they're you know, not neglecting church and worship. And, and, and then you start wondering, are they? Maybe they're driving to church. Maybe they're not. How do you, you have to avoid these kind of snap judgments, right? We had this when I was growing up in a small Dutch Reformed town. Any time on Sunday that a lawnmower engine started on a Sunday afternoon, everybody would be looking out the window, kind of glaring, like, who is mowing their lawn on a Sunday? That's, that's taboo. You don't do that. That, again, can be a surface judgment. Maybe the neighbor is helping the other guy fix his lawnmower, and he finally got it going, and he's got it started, right? There's all kinds of ways that we can make surface judgments that are, that are unfair to people. Jesus is pointing that out here. The Jews are doing that with him and with the guy who picked up his mat and walked. Well, uh, that's a lot on there, but you, you see that what Jesus is saying. Be careful how you judge, verse 24. Uh, so recap so far. The people evaluate Jesus like other teachers, and Jesus corrects that misunderstanding. He says, I'm from God. I'm completely pure and righteous. And then he answers this unspoken objection to his healing on the Sabbath. So that's where we are so far. Now, the next section, verse 25 to 31, they don't know where Jesus is from. And so that's their next question. Well, we know where Jesus is from, and when the Messiah comes, we're not going to know. So this can't be the Messiah. So the people are applying some reason to figuring out who the Messiah is. They're very keen to know that, but they're coming up with the wrong answers. Jesus' basic response to this is, well, you know me, but you don't know me. <laughs> you know I'm from Nazareth, 
but you don't know that I'm truly from God, from heaven. You're resisting and, and refusing to believe that, so you really don't know where I'm from. So if that's the case, that they're not going to know where the Messiah is from, it's true. They, they don't know he's from heaven. They think Jesus is just from Nazareth. It's also, they also didn't know he was born in Bethlehem, it seems, and I think that's a key fact. But anyway, they're, they're either in error about this assumption that they're not going to know where the Messiah is from, or they're talking about Messiah appearing suddenly, like Malachi 3, right? It says that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. They may be thinking about that, that when the Messiah comes, it'll be unexpected, and everybody will say, where'd he come from? That kind of, we don't know where he's from. So they're probably thinking, we've known this guy for a year or two at least. He grew up in Nazareth. We know Joseph and Mary. He hasn't appeared suddenly. He's not from the right place, really. So again, they're misunderstanding Jesus on an earthly level. They're not looking at him coming down from heaven. They do the same thing later in verse 35 and 36. They think his going away means going to the dispersion to the Greeks. He's talking about ascending into heaven again. So lots of misunderstandings. Once again, he told us in chapter 6 of John about coming down from heaven as the bread from heaven. And the people misunderstood. The Samaritan woman misunderstood Jesus when she thought she wasn't going to have to draw water from the well anymore. Nicodemus misunderstood Jesus, and he thought he had to enter the womb a second time. And you notice all those misunderstandings have a common theme. It's all the people, the misunderstanding is you're only thinking in an earthly plane. And Jesus has come from heaven, and that answers all the questions. It answers all the questions. So lots of people misunderstand Jesus today, and it's often the same kind of problem. We talked last time about how people think he's a great teacher. The good example, Jesus, who was a peaceful flower child type, there, there's that misunderstanding. Others see him as outdated in his teaching about marriage or divorce. Uh, they'll tell you that he would have no problem with same-sex marriage. But lots of misunderstandings about Jesus today. Uh, so remember, whenever you sin, whenever we sin, we're getting Jesus wrong in some way. right? He's the Lord of our lives. His name is on us in baptism. He's changing you into his glorious image. So when we sin, we're thinking something wrong about Jesus, either that he doesn't care, that he isn't watching, something. We're getting the wrong idea. We get the wrong idea that God is a cosmic killjoy sometimes, that Jesus is there to keep us from enjoying life. That's not true. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore, the psalmist says. And Jesus is at God's right hand. So we misunderstand Jesus in many ways, and that leads us astray. We, we get focused on the pleasure that God is withholding from us instead of the delights that we already have. So don't misunderstand Jesus. When you say you know him, it, how often is it in that flippant kind of sense? Like, yeah, I've heard about him enough. I don't really have to do anything with that. A uh, great example here might be the, we've got the Bible reading challenge plans up again. And as those come around seasonally, maybe you're thinking, I've already read the Bible. Again? Why again? Because this is the life-giving word that he's given to us. Read God's word. Uh, take up and use uh, plans, opportunities uh, to keep you in the word. Jesus, in verse 28, he cries out as he teaches them. Uh, now the people are misunderstanding him, and so he cries out. It's not very often in Scripture that Jesus cries out few times. 
to misunderstand Jesus so badly that he has to cry out in your life. That's a serious thing indeed. He cries out and he says, you know me, you know where I'm from, but I haven't come from myself. That, that's the, what I began with. He, you know where I'm from, Nazareth, but you don't know where I'm from, heaven. Uh, so Jesus, again, is uh, correcting, teaching further uh, as they are uh, misunderstanding him. The last section, verse 30 to the end, uh, his uh, near arrest, right? So now they're, they're trying to arrest him. And Jesus says, I'll be with you only a little while longer. It wasn't his hour. And so somehow, we don't know the details. I've always found this fascinating to think through. How, is the, how far did the officers get? Did they get right up to Jesus? Were they listening to him teach? I think they were listening to him teach because in a chapter or two, we, they, they come back to the authorities. If you want to look ahead, it's, it's the end of chapter 7. And they say, how come you didn't arrest him? And they say, nobody spoke like this guy ever spoke. So they must have been going to arrest him and then listen to his teaching and stop and listen a bit more. Anyway, somehow God prevents this arrest. And this is, I just want to make the point of providence here. We prayed for the persecuted church a moment ago, for example. Right? We can apply this to the persecuted church in our own personal lives. God protects Jesus here in some supernatural way, such that even though there's a warrant out for his arrest... And it's fairly easy, logistically, to get him arrested. God prevents it. So if, if you find yourself at risk, in danger, if, if we see trouble coming in our culture, when we hear about things in the, in the church abroad being persecuted, well, we can continue to trust in God's protecting power. But we are as safe in God's hands now as Jesus was in that temple then. Uh, lived in the South for the past dozen years or so, so I found myself occasionally quoting some uh, Southern uh, Civil War generals. I found myself uh, learning uh, that there, are, uh, there were uh, godly men on, on that side of the conflict. And Stonewall Jackson became one of my favorites. Stonewall Jackson uh, has this uh, famous quote. He, was, he got his nickname from his standing straight and erect in his, in his, on his horse in the middle of the battle, right with the bullets flying, the cannons all around him. He could get hit at any moment, and he just stood perfectly still and straight like a stone wall, they said. Well, here's what he said about why he could do that. He says, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then we would all be equally brave. He had a strong belief in God's providence in that, and that's what led him to be like a stone wall in battle. We are safe in God's providence. We need to remember that. Well, verse 33, when they try to stop Jesus, he tells them what he's going to do, and he tells them how their efforts will be fruitless, basically. I'll be with you a little longer, and I'm going to go away. In other words, you're not going to arrest me. <laughs> so I don't know if you've ever done this, but put yourself in the, in the position here of the rulers who want to arrest Jesus, right? This is who we, we don't want to put ourselves in that position, by the way, right? That's, that's not us. We're, we're faithful disciples. Well, we often try to be, but whenever we, we find ourselves on the path of sin, we're on the other position. And 
what we're really doing is trying to arrest to stop Jesus, like Peter on the road, right? No, Jesus, don't, don't go to Jerusalem and be uh, crucified and killed. We, we say no to Jesus sometimes. You know what's right and wrong. You want something that Jesus doesn't want you to go after. And so you just say, Lord, you're on the sidelines for this one. I'm running this play. I know you're calling that one and you're the coach, but I'm on the field. Right? That, that happens to us sometimes in our sin. And we try to manage the coach. And the coach can call us out of the game anytime he wants to. But still, we try to persuade the Lord, let's do this my way. Now, that picture isn't a perfect fit, but because this divine coach, he doesn't just stand helpless on the sidelines while the players screw it up, right? He is all powerful, and his providence gets done what he wants done. Well, at the end of our text here, we have a bit of an awkward ending to our text because we'll look at the rest next time. But at the end, they remain confused, right? The text ends with a question. What is this he's saying? And they quote Jesus again. Where I am, you can't come? What is he talking about? They remain confused at the end of the text. Jesus has more to teach them. More next time. So consider in the meantime, as we close, that Jesus has more to teach you. And he has more to teach me. That remains true. One of my CREC pastor friend acquaintances is Randy Booth in Texas. He... Um, He's glorious for this kind of teaching. He likes to say, think about how much you've learned and grown in the last five or ten years. Think about where you were ten years ago. Things are so different now, right? And he says, do you think that is going to stop now? That you've arrived? No, five, ten years from now, you're going to have learned more. There's more learning that you have in, in, in your future. Places in your life to change. That's coming, so be ready for that. Be listening and open to Jesus teaching you more in the future. So when the Christ comes, back in verse 31, they ask, will he do more works than these? Jesus humbled himself to become a human being. He taught us clearly the truth about himself and about, ourself, about himself and about ourselves. He laid down his perfect life as a pleasing sacrifice to God to pay for our sins. He's risen to new life, to give that new life to you. And so he says in verse 33, I go to him who sent me. That's a key thing that Jesus tells us that leaves that with us as, as our final point today. All our hopes rest in one geographical spot at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where Jesus went. That's where he is. He went back to the Father after his resurrection. He intercedes for you now from there. And he'll come again to finish the victory and to bring you to see the Father face to face. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the teaching that your Son has given us. Thank you for the reminder that he has gone to be with you that he will come again to take us to be with you soon. We pray, Lord, that you would draw us uh, more and more to your Son, Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of sin, show us where we need to change, uh, show us, Lord, how we need to speak uh, to apostles and refugees uh, of an ungodly culture. 
Show us, Lord, how we can be uh, light in dark places. We thank you for your word, for your work in our lives, for ways in which you are changing us uh, to be more like Christ, to be holy and pure and faithful. We pray in the name of Jesus, and we pray as he taught us to pray. Corinthians 10 for our communion exhortation this morning. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. In our sermon series, John is hammering away at the theme, Jesus is from God, over and over. Jesus is from God, a simple message. And I'd like you to consider this morning that the word preached and the sacraments also are from God. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Israel drank of Christ in the desert. The physical eating and drinking that we do here should be a sign, a pointer, to the spiritual feeding on Christ that we're doing. We're sharing in the life of Christ here when we eat with faith in him. Now, you can't see that with your eyes, right? It's the work of the Spirit, but it is real. I've often thought that to a materialist, to an unbeliever, that this must be the silliest part of what we do together. Here we all are, we eat a chunk of bread at the same time in silence. What's the point? What, that, what is that doing? Well, the Scriptures tell us here in 1 Corinthians 10, the Spirit is using this action not only to remind us of Christ, but really to bring the person of Jesus to our souls for us to feed upon. The Jews had a hard time believing Jesus was from God because they knew his parents, they knew his hometown. It can be the same for us. We can have a hard time seeing God at work in this supper, knowing this is just common bread, especially if we have a part in putting the bread in the cup on the table, making the bread, right? But this is a means of grace. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, 
please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.